Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading two more stories, Macbeth and The Comedy of Errors, from William Shakespeare and E. Nesbitt's Beautiful Stories from Shakespeare. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Story One Macbeth When a person is asked to tell the story of Macbeth, he can tell two stories. One is of a man called Macbeth, who came to the throne of Scotland by a crime in the year of our Lord, 1039, and reigned justly and well, on the whole, for fifteen years or more. This story is part of Scottish history. The other story issues from a place called Imagination. It is gloomy and wonderful and you shall hear it. A year or two before Edward the Confessor began to rule England, a battle was won in Scotland against a Norwegian king by two generals named Macbeth and Banquo. After the battle, the generals walked together towards Fores in Elginshire, where Duncan, King of Scotland, was awaiting them. While they were crossing a lonely heath, they saw three bearded women, sisters, hand in hand, withered in appearance and wild in their attire. Speak, who are you? demanded Macbeth. Hail Macbeth, chieftain of Glamis, said the first woman. Hail Macbeth, chieftain of Cawdor, said the second woman. Hail Macbeth, king that is to be, said the third woman. Then Banquo asked, What of me? And the third woman replied, Thou shalt be the father of kings. Tell me more, said Macbeth. By my father's death I am chieftain of Glamis, but the chieftain of Cawdor lives, and the king lives, and his children live. Speak, 
I charge you. The woman replied only by vanishing, as though suddenly mixed with the air. Banquo and Macbeth knew then that they had been addressed by witches, and were discussing their prophecies when two nobles approached. One of them thanked Macbeth in the king's name for his military services, and the other said, He bade me call you chieftain of Cawdor. Macbeth then learned that the men who had yesterday borne that title was to die for treason, and he could not help thinking. The third witch called me king that is to be. Banquo, he said, you see that the witches spoke truth concerning me. Do you not believe, therefore, that your children and grandchildren will be kings? Banquo frowned. Duncan had two sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, and he thought it disloyal to hope that his son Fleance should rule Scotland. He told Macbeth that the witches might have intended to tempt them both into villainy by their prophecies concerning the throne. Macbeth, however, thought the prophecy that he should be king too pleasant to keep to himself, and he mentioned it to his wife in a letter. Lady Macbeth was the granddaughter of a king of Scotland, who had died in defending his crown against the king who preceded Duncan, and by whose order her only brother was slain. To her, Duncan was a reminder of bitter wrongs. Her husband had royal blood in his veins, and when she read his letter, she was determined that he should be king. When a messenger arrived to inform her that Duncan would pass a night in Macbeth's castle, she nerved herself for a very base action. She told Macbeth almost as soon as she saw him that Duncan must spend a sunless morrow. She meant that Duncan must die and that the dead are blind. We will speak further, said Macbeth uneasily, and at night, with his memory full of Duncan's kind words, he would fain have spared his guest. Would you live a coward, demanded Lady Macbeth, who seems to have thought that morality and cowardice were the same. I dare do all that may become a man, replied Macbeth. Who dare do more is none. Why did you write that letter to me? 
she inquired fiercely, and with bitter words she egged him on to murder, and with cunning words she showed him how to do it. After supper, Duncan went to bed, and two grooms were placed on guard at his bedroom door. Lady Macbeth caused them to drink wine till they were stupefied. She then took their daggers and would have killed the king herself if his sleeping face had not looked like her father's. Macbeth came later and found the daggers lying by the grooms, and soon with red hands he appeared before his wife, saying, Methought I heard a voice cry, Sleep no more, Macbeth destroys the sleeping. Wash your hands, said she, Why did you not leave the daggers by the grooms? Take them back, and smear the grooms with blood. I dare not, said Macbeth. His wife dared, and she returned to him with hands red as his own, but a heart less white. She proudly told him, for she scorned his fear. The murderers heard a knocking, and Macbeth wished it was a knocking that could wake the dead. It was the knocking of Macduff, the chieftain of Fife, who had been told by Duncan to visit him early. Macbeth went to him and showed him the door of the king's room. Macduff entered and came out again crying, Oh, horror, horror, horror. Macbeth appeared as horror-stricken as Macduff, and pretending that he could not dare to see life in Duncan's murderers, he slew the two grooms with their own daggers before they could proclaim their innocence. These murders did not shriek out and Macbeth was crowned at Scone. One of Duncan's sons went to Ireland, the other to England. Macbeth was king, but he was discontented. The prophecy concerning Banquo oppressed his mind. If Fleance were to rule, a son of Macbeth would not rule. Macbeth determined, therefore, to murder both Banquo and his son. He hired two ruffians who slew Banquo one night when he was on his way with Fleance to a banquet which Macbeth was giving to his nobles. Fleance escaped. Meanwhile, Macbeth and his queen received their guests very graciously, and he expressed a wish for them which has been uttered thousands of times since his day. Now good digestion wait on appetite. <laughs>
and health on both. We pray your majesty sit with us, said Lennox, a Scotch noble, but ere Macbeth could reply, the ghost of Banquo entered the banqueting hall and sat in Macbeth's place. Not noticing the ghost, Macbeth observed that, if Banquo were present, he could say that he had collected under his roof the choicest chivalry of Scotland. Macduff, however, had curtly declined his invitation. The king was again pressed to take a seat, and Lennox, to whom Banquo's ghost was invisible, showed him the chair where it sat. But Macbeth, with his eyes of genius, saw the ghost. He saw it like a form of mist and blood, and he demanded passionately, Which of you have done this? Still none saw the ghost but he, and to the ghost Macbeth said, Thou canst not say I did it. The ghost glided out, and Macbeth was impudent enough to raise a glass of wine to the general joy of the whole table, and to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. The toast was drunk as the ghost of Banquo entered for the second time. Be gone, cried Macbeth. You are senseless, mindless. Hide in the earth, thou horrible shadow. Again, none saw the ghost but he. What is it your majesty sees? asked one of the nobles. The queen dared not permit an answer to be given to this question. She hurriedly begged her guests to quit a sick man who was likely to grow worse if he was obliged to talk. Macbeth, however, was well enough next day to converse with the witches whose prophecies had so depraved him. He found them in a cavern on a thunderous day. They were revolving around a cauldron in which were boiling particles of many strange and horrible creatures, and they knew he was coming before he arrived. Answer me what I ask you, said the king. Would you rather hear it from us or our masters? asked the first witch. Call them, replied Macbeth. Thereupon the witches poured blood into the cauldron and grease into the flame that licked it, and a helmeted head appeared with the visor on so that Macbeth could only see its eyes. He was speaking to the head when the first witch said gravely, He knows thy thought, and a voice in the head said, Macbeth, 
Beware Macduff, the chieftain of Fife. The head then descended into the cauldron till it disappeared. One word more, pleaded Macbeth. He will not be commanded, said the first witch, and then a crowned child ascended from the cauldron, bearing a tree in its hands. The child said, Macbeth shall be unconquerable till the wood of Burnham climbs Dunsinane Hill. That will never be, said Macbeth, and he asked to be told if Banquo's descendants would ever rule Scotland. The cauldron sank into the earth. Music was heard, and a procession of phantom kings filed past Macbeth. Behind them was Banquo's ghost. In each king, Macbeth saw a likeness to Banquo, and he counted eight kings. Then he was suddenly left alone. His next proceeding was to send murderers to Macduff's castle. They did not find Macduff, and asked Lady Macduff where he was. She gave a stinging answer, and her questioner called Macduff a traitor. Thou liest, shouted Macduff's little son, who was immediately stabbed and with his last breath entreated his mother to fly. The murderers did not leave the castle while one of its inmates remained alive. Macduff was in England listening, with Malcolm, to a doctor's tale of cures wrought by Edward the Confessor when his friend Ross came to tell him that his wife and children were no more. At first Ross dared not speak the truth, and turn Macduff's bright sympathy with sufferers relieved by royal virtue into sorrow and hatred. But when Malcolm said that England was sending an army into Scotland against Macbeth, Ross blurted out his news, and Macduff cried, All dead, did you say? All my pretty ones and their mother, did you say all? His sorry hope was in revenge, but if he could have looked into Macbeth's castle on Dunsinane Hill, he would have seen at work a force more solemn than revenge. Retribution was working, for Lady Macbeth was mad. She walked in her sleep amid ghastly dreams. She was wont to wash her hands for a quarter of an hour at a time, but after all her washing, would still see a red spot of blood upon her skin. It was pitiful to hear her cry, 
that all the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten her little hand. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? inquired Macbeth of the doctor. But the doctor replied that his patient must minister her own mind. This reply gave Macbeth the scorn of medicine. Throw physic to the dogs, he said, I'll none of it. One day he heard a sound of a woman crying. An officer approached him and said, The Queen, Your Majesty, is dead. Out, brief candle, muttered Macbeth, meaning that life was like a candle at the mercy of a puff of air. He did not weep. He was too familiar with death. Presently a messenger told him that he saw Burnham Wood on the march. Macbeth called him a liar and a slave, and threatened to hang him if he had been mistaken. If you are right, you can hang me, he said. From the turret windows of Dunsinane Castle, Burnham Wood did indeed appear to be marching. Every soldier of the English army held aloft a bough which he had cut from a tree in that wood, and like human trees they climbed Dunsinane Hill. Macbeth had still his courage. He went to battle to conquer or die and the first thing he did was to kill the English general's son in single combat. Macbeth then felt that no man could fight him and live, and when Macduff came to him blazing for revenge, Macbeth said to him, Go back, I have spilt too much of your blood already. My voice is my sword, replied Macduff, and hacked at him and bade him yield. I will not yield, said Macbeth, but his last hour had struck. He fell. Macbeth's men were in retreat when Macduff came before Malcolm, holding a king's head by the hair. Hail king, he said, and the new king looked at the old. So Malcolm reigned after Macbeth, but in years that came afterwards, the descendants of Banquo were kings. Story 2 The Comedy of Errors Agion was a merchant of Syracuse, which is a seaport in Sicily. His wife was Amelia, and they were very happy until Agion's manager died, and he was obliged to go by himself to a place called Epidanum 
on the Adriatic. As soon as she could, Amelia followed him, and after they had been together some time, two baby boys were born to them. The babies were exactly alike. Even when they were dressed differently, they looked the same. And now you must believe a very strange thing. At the same inn where these children were born, and on the same day, two baby boys were born to a much poorer couple than Amelia and Adjion. So poor indeed were the parents of these twins that they sold them to the parents of the other twins. Amelia was eager to show her children to her friends in Syracuse, and in treacherous weather she and Agion and the four babies sailed homewards. They were still far from Syracuse when their ship sprang a leak, and the crew left it in a body by the only boat, carrying little what became of their passengers. Amelia fastened one of her children to a mast and tied one of the slave children to him. Agion followed her example with the remaining children. Then the parents secured themselves to the same masts and hoped for safety. The ship, however, suddenly struck a rock and was split in two, and Amelia and the two children who she had tied floated away from Agion and the other children. Amelia and her charges were picked up by some people of Epitanum, but some fishermen of Corinth took the babies from her by force, and she returned to Epitanum alone and very miserable. Afterwards she settled in Ephesus, a famous town in Asia Minor. Agion and his charges were also saved, and, more fortunate than Amelia, he was able to return to Syracuse and keep them till they were eighteen. His own child he called Antipholus and the slave child he called Dromeo, and, strangely enough, these were the names given to the children who floated away from him. At the age of eighteen, the son who was with Agion grew restless with the desire to find his brother. Agion let him depart with his servant, and the young men are henceforth known as Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Syracuse. Let alone, Agion found his home too dreary to dwell in, and travelled for five years. 
he did not, during his absence, learn all the news of Syracuse, or he would never have gone to Ephesus. As it was, his melancholy wandering ceased in that town, where he was arrested almost as soon as he arrived. He then found that the Duke of Syracuse had been acting in so tyrannical a manner to the Ephesians, unlucky enough to fall into his hands, that the government of Ephesus had angrily passed a law which punished by death or fine of a thousand pounds any Syracusian who should come to Ephesus. Agion was brought before Solinus, Duke of Ephesus, who told him that he must die or pay a thousand pounds before the end of the day. You will think there was fate in this when I tell you that the children who were kidnapped by the fishermen of Corinth were now citizens of Ephesus whither they had been brought by Duke Menaphor, an uncle of Duke Solinus. They will henceforth be called Antiphilus of Ephesus and Dromeo of Ephesus. Moreover, on the very day when Agion was arrested, Antiphilus of Syracuse landed in Ephesus and pretended that he came from Epidanum in order to avoid a penalty. He handed his money to his servant Dromeo of Syracuse, and bade him take it to the Centaur Inn and remain there till he came. In less than ten minutes he was met on the mart by Dromeo of Ephesus, his brother's slave, and immediately took him for his own Dromeo. Why are you back so soon? Where did you leave the money? asked Antiphilus of Syracuse. This Dromeo knew of no money except sixpence, which he had received on the previous Wednesday and given to the saddler but he did not know that his mistress was annoyed because his master was not in to dinner, and he asked Antiphilus of Syracuse to go to a house called the Phoenix without delay. His speech angered the hearer, who would have beaten him if he had not fled. Antiphilus of Syracuse then went to the centaur, found that his gold had been deposited there, and walked out of the inn. He was wandering about Ephesus when two beautiful ladies signalled to him with their hands. They were sisters, and their names were Adriana and Luciana. Adriana was the wife of his brother, Antiphilus of Ephesus, and she had made up her mind, 
from the strange account given by Dromeo of Ephesus that her husband preferred another woman to his wife. A. You may look as if you did not know me, she said to the man who was really her brother-in-law. But I can remember when no words were sweet unless I said them, no meat flavoursome unless I carved it. Is it you I address? said Antiphilus of Syracuse stiffly. I do not know you. Fie, brother, said Luciana. You know perfectly well that she sent Dromeo to you to bid you to come to dinner. Adriana said, Come, come, I have been made a fool of long enough. My truant husband shall dine with me and confess his silly pranks and be forgiven. They were determined ladies, and Antiphilus of Syracuse grew weary of disputing with them, and followed them obediently to the phoenix, where a very late midday dinner awaited them. They were at dinner when Antiphilus of Ephesus and his slave Dromeo demanded admittance. Maud, Bridget, Marion, Celian, Gillian, Gin, shouted Dromeo of Ephesus, who knew all his fellow servants' names by heart. From within came the reply, Fool, dray horse, coxum, idiot. It was Dromeo of Syracuse unconsciously insulting his brother. Master and man did their best to get in, short of using a crowbar, and finally went away. But Antiphilus of Ephesus felt so annoyed with his wife that he decided to give a gold chain which he promised to her to another woman. Inside the phoenix, Luciana, who believed Antiphilus of Syracuse to be her sister's husband, attempted, by a discourse in rhyme, when alone with him, to make him kinder to Adriana. In reply he told her that he was not married, but that he loved her so much that, if Luciana were a mermaid, he would gladly lie on the sea if he might feel beneath him her floating golden hair. Luciana was shocked and left him and reported his love-making to Adriana, who said that her husband was old and ugly, and not fit to be seen nor heard, though secretly she was very fond of him. Antiphilus of Syracuse soon received a visitor in the shape of Angelo the goldsmith, 
of whom Antiphilus of Ephesus had ordered the chain which he had promised his wife and intended to give to another woman. The goldsmith handed the chain to Antiphilus of Syracuse and treated his I bespoke it not as mere fun, so that the puzzled merchant took the chain as good-humouredly as he had partaken of Adriana's dinner. He offered payment, but Angelo foolishly said he would call again. The consequence was that Angelo was without money when a creditor of that sort that stands no nonsense threatened him with arrest until he paid his debt immediately. This creditor had bought a police officer with him, and Angelo was relieved to see Antiphilus of Ephesus coming out of the house where he had been dining, because he had been locked out of the phoenix. Bitter was Angelo's dismay when Antiphilus denied receipt of the chain. Angelo could have sent his mother to prison if she had said that, and he gave Antiphilus of Ephesus in charge. At this moment, up came Dromio of Syracuse and told the wrong Antiphilus that he had shipped his goods and that a favourable wind was blowing. To the ears of Antiphilus of Ephesus, this talk was simply nonsense. He would gladly have beaten the slave, but contented himself with crossly telling him to hurry to Adriana and bid her send to her arrested husband a purse of money which she would find in his desk. Though Adriana was furious with her husband because she thought he had been making love to her sister, she did not prevent Luciana from getting the purse and she bade Dromio of Syracuse bring home his master immediately. Unfortunately, before Dromio could reach the police station, he met his real master, who had never been arrested, and did not understand what he meant by offering him a purse. Antiphilus of Syracuse was further surprised when a lady whom he did not know asked him for a chain that he had promised her. She was, of course, the lady with whom Antiphilus of Ephesus had dined when his brother was occupying his place at the table. Avant, thou witch, was the answer which to her astonishment, she received. Meanwhile, Antiphilus of Ephesus waited vainly for the money which was to have released him. Never a good-tempered man, he was crazy with anger when Dromio of Ephesus, who, 
of course, had not been instructed to fetch a purse, appeared with nothing more useful than a rope. He beat the slave in the street despite the remonstrance of the police officer, and his temper did not mend when Adriana, Luciana, and a doctor arrived under the impression that he was mad and must have his pulse felt. He raged so much that men came forward to bind him, but the kindness of Adriana spared him this shame. She promised to pay the sum demanded of him, and asked the doctor to lead him to the phoenix. Angelo's merchant creditor being paid, the two were friendly again, and might soon have been seen chatting before an abbey about the odd behaviour of Antiphilus of Ephesus. Softly, said the merchant at last, that's he, I think. It was not. It was Antiphilus of Syracuse with his servant Dromeo, and he wore Angelo's chain round his neck. The reconciled pair fairly pounced upon him to know what he meant by denying the receipt of the chain he had the impudence to wear. Antiphilus of Syracuse lost his temper and drew his sword, and at that moment Adriana and several others appeared. Hold, shouted the careful wife, hurt him not, he is mad, take his sword away, bind him, and Dromeo too. Dromeo of Syracuse did not wish to be bound, and he said to his master, Run, master, into that abbey, quick, or we shall be robbed. They accordingly retreated into the abbey. Adriana, Luciana, and a crowd remained outside, and the abbess came out and said, People, why do you gather here? To fetch my poor distract husband, replied Adriana. Angelo and the merchant remarked that they had not known that he was mad. Adriana then told the abbess rather too much about her wifely worries, for the abbess received the idea that Adriana was shrewd, and that if her husband was distracted, he had better not return to her for the present. Adriana determined, therefore, to complain to Duke Solinus, and, lo and behold, a minute afterwards the great man appeared with officers and two others. The others were Adjon and the headsman. The thousand marks had not been found, and Adjon's fate seemed sealed. Ere the duke 
could pass the Abbey Adriana knelt before him, and told a woeful tale of a mad husband rushing about stealing jewellery and drawing his sword, adding that the abbess refused to allow her to lead him home. The duke bade the abbess be summoned, and no sooner had he given the order than a servant from the phoenix ran to Adriana with the tale that his master had signed off the doctor's beard. Nonsense, said Adriana, he's in the abbey. As sure as I live I speak the truth, said the servant. Antiphilus of Syracuse had not come out of the abbey before his brother of Ephesus prostrated himself in front of the duke, exclaiming, Justice, most gracious duke, against that woman, he pointed to Adriana. She has treated another man like her husband in my own house. Even while he was speaking, Adjion said, Unless I am delirious, I see my son Antiphilus. No one noticed him, and Antiphilus of Ephesus went on to say how the doctor, whom he called a threadbare juggler, had been one of a gang who tied him to his slave Dromeo and thrust them into a vault whence he had escaped by gnawing through his bonds. The duke could not understand how the same man who spoke to him was seen to go into the abbey, and he was still wondering when Agion asked Antiphilus of Ephesus if he was not his son. He replied, I never saw my father in my life. But so deceived was Agion by his likeness to his brother, whom he had brought up, that he said, Thou art ashamed to acknowledge me in misery. Soon, however, the abbess advanced with Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Syracuse. Then cried Adriana, I see two husbands, or my eyes deceive me. And Antiphilus, espying his father, said, Thou art Adjun, or his ghost. It was a day of surprises, for the abbess said, I will free that man by paying his fine and gain my husband whom I lost. Speak, Adjon, for I am thy wife, Amelia. The duke was touched. He is free without fine, he said. So Adjon and Amelia were reunited, and Adriana and her husband reconciled. But no one was happier than Antiphilus of Syracuse, who, in the duke's presence, went to Luciana 
and said, I told you I loved you. Will you be my wife? Her answer was given by a look, and therefore is not written. The two Dromios were glad to think they would receive no more beatings. <laughs>